0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Last year, I was on a business trip uh, in Israel, and a colleague and friend of mine was with me, and we were at the end of our trip. We had been there for about 10 days, and my friend wanted to get a gift for his wife from Israel. It was a nice thought, a nice thing to do. Uh, Most wives would like to have a gift when you come back from a place like Israel. And so we went looking together for this gift. We found a a, a market area uh, where we could go, and there were all these shops uh, with all kinds of different stores. But he had heard about this one particular store uh, where you could have a perfume made for someone in particular. And so we went looking for this shop, and we found it. It was kind of off the beaten path, but we got there. There was one shopkeeper in there, and we went in, and she started asking him questions about his wife. Does she like the beach, or does she like the mountains? Does she like uh, bright colors, or does she like kind of earthy tones? Does she like this, or does she like that? And after asking all of these questions, she took a couple of bottles off of the wall, and she dipped some dipsticks in them, and she held them all together under his nose, and then said, is this right? And he said, yes, that is what my wife should smell like. and so he brought this home as a gift for her, and she was delighted with it. Now, he had, he had gotten perfume for his wife on many occasions before, uh, many different times. But this perfume was special because it was made for her. It wasn't just some perfume that he pulled off of a shelf and spent money on. He spent money on it, but it was crafted for her. He put thought into it. That perfumer put thought into it. They crafted it carefully until they came up with something that they knew that she would like, that really fit her. And I think something similar is the reason why Psalm 23 is one of the most popular passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. There are lots of places in the Scriptures where God talks about himself as a shepherd, as one who cares for the flock. He relates the people of Israel to the flock of sheep. But here... In Psalm 23, he's not just the shepherd, he's not just our shepherd, but the Lord is my shepherd. He's a shepherd personally to each of us, to you and to me. And I think there's a comfort that we find in that, to know that we have a shepherd who knows us each by name, who's watching over us, who cares for us, who knows our every need. But we also have to think about sheep for a minute. When we think about domesticated sheep and I'm not talking about mountain sheep, I'm not talking about self-sufficient sheep. I'm talking about fluffy, white or black, domesticated sheep that live on farms these sheep are not the brightest creatures. These sheep uh, really need a shepherd to care for them. If left to their own devices, they will eat the wrong things. They will wander off into the wrong places. They'll get caught up in thickets. They'll fall down into ravines. Sheep really need a shepherd to watch out for them. They need a shepherd to care for them. They need a shepherd to defend them. Because if a wolf comes, there are lots of stories of entire flocks of sheep getting taken out. Hundreds of sheep overnight by just two dogs. They're pretty defenseless they're pretty helpless. And we have to remember that we're kind of like that. We're kind of like those sheep. God's not paying us a compliment when when he calls us sheep. But he's speaking a truth about who we are. As much as we want to be confident on the outside, as much as we want to project an image of self-sufficiency and competence, all of us deep down inside realize that we're all quite vulnerable. That we're all quite defenseless. That things could happen in our lives which would change it in a moment. That even our life itself is a gift each and every day. And we are utterly dependent on God, just like those sheep are utterly dependent on their shepherd. And so in the first four verses of this psalm, we see God... to three distinct ways that a shepherd cares for his sheep. Three distinct ways that God cares for each one of us. So what are they? Well, the first one is in the first verse and the second verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He knows the things that we need and he provides for them. He makes sure that we lack for nothing that we require. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. The two things that sheep really need are food and water. That's the things that we really need, too. Without those things, we die. Without those things, sheep die. But sheep have a hard time finding green pastures on their own, especially in the area of Israel. In first century Palestine, as today, there are a few months of rainy season. They just came to an end. They usually end somewhere around March. And then the whole rest of the year is the dry season. And almost overnight, things change from lush and green. When I was there last March, there were all these beautiful wildflowers all over the place but then almost overnight it shifts to something that looks very much like a desert. Brown, crunchy, hard, dry, arid. And it's hard to find green pastures in that kind of an environment. But it's the shepherd's job to make sure that the sheep find the good grass. The grass that they need. And to make sure that they know what's in that pasture, because there are some green plants that a sheep really shouldn't eat. They're poisonous. And the sheep's health will be negatively impacted if they eat the wrong things in those fields. And so the shepherd has to be careful to know all the different kinds of plants that might be in a pasture when they let the sheep go out and start grazing. The shepherd has to know the sheep really well, has to know where they're likely to go where they're likely to falter and make sure that he points them to the places where the good green grass is where they can lie down because their stomachs are full similarly the shepherd needs to know where to find water for the sheep the water needs to be clean so that the sheep won't get sick sick and yet it needs to at the same time be kind of still Stagnant water tends to to bring diseases and get the sheep sick But the sheep also don't like fast-moving water because think about a sheep for a minute with all that wool If a sheep gets caught up in water, what's gonna happen? It's gonna drown. So the shepherd has to find water that's still but not too still Just the right kind of water and they can find that from a well They can find it from a stream that has very slow-moving water, but whatever it is the shepherd needs to find the place where there's clean water and water that the sheep are willing to drink. Without that, without the food from the grass, without the water, the sheep will die. And so the sheep are utterly dependent on the shepherd to provide for them. Without a shepherd to provide food and water, domesticated sheep would very quickly die in the wilderness. And God provides for us too. Sometimes this is through normative means, through a job, through regular work. And other times it's through miraculous means, like God provided for his people in the wilderness and gave them manna to eat, food that just appeared on the ground each and every night that they could collect for the day and eat it. Or today, when just the right kind of work pops up from a random side job at just the right moment, or a a check happens to arrive in the mail from an unidentified source... And all of a sudden you have the money that you were lacking to pay your rent or your electric bill or any of your other needs. God still cares for us. He still provides for us, just like a shepherd cares for and provides for his sheep. But beyond being a provider, God is also a guide, just like a shepherd guides sheep. And we talked about that with good pastures and good water. The shepherd guides the sheep to the good pastures, the green pastures, guides them to the waters. But he also guides us, as it says in verse 3, in paths of righteousness. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Where would we be without a moral compass to guide us? We'd be lost. We'd be drifting. When we look in the Proverbs, it says this, chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Have you ever seen a leader who surrounds him or herself with people who think just like them? Is that usually a good idea? No. Because when the leader gets a stupid idea, the people around the leader amplify stupid. They make stupid stupider. Because they all play off of each other and they go off in the wrong direction. At full speed. When we listen to ourselves for advice, when we take counsel in ourselves, we're swayed by all kinds of things, by our emotions, by our desires, by our passions. We're like a ship that's not tied to the dock. We just drift aimlessly. And it's not good for us, and it's not good for the people around us. The fool thinks things are right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Similarly, in the second letter to Timothy, Paul writes this as he's closing up the letter. He's exhorting Timothy to be diligent in preaching the word in season and out of season. And he says in verses 3 and 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's like the same thing that we read about in the Proverbs. If you have a desire and you try and read about all the ways why your desire is right, you're taking counsel not in wisdom, but in your own folly, your own foolishness. And that's what we do when we're left to our own devices. We look for excuses to do the thing that we really want to do, even if it might not be the best thing for us, or the best thing for the people around us, or the best thing for the people under our care. We drift around aimlessly without a moral compass. And throughout history, we've seen people and cultures do horrific things when they were doing what was right in their own eyes. You don't have to go too far back in history to find just that. Really, just, you know, in the last couple weeks, we can see that. So when people do what's right in their own eyes, they go astray. But when God guides them, God gives them that moral compass. He leads them in those paths of righteousness. And it's these paths, as it says at the beginning of the verse, that restore our soul. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. God gave us the way to go. He guides us. He shows us what the boundaries are. And when we're outside of that, our soul is in trouble. Our soul is in tumult. Things aren't going the way for us that we desire for them to go. Even if we think we're doing what we want to do, ultimately, it will go badly for us. And so the shepherd is guiding us back to those paths of righteousness, guiding us back to the way that we should go. And he does this for his name's sake. God is protecting his reputation. When we ask him to guide us, he will always be faithful, and he will never steer us in the wrong direction because he's a good shepherd, and he cares for his sheep, and his guidance can always be trusted. And then we move on to the third role that God has, that of protector. When we look in verse 4, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This could be very literally a very dark place, or a place where death is threatened. And even though God is our shepherd, there's no guarantee that we won't sometimes go through scary and dark places. Sometimes God himself might even lead us into those scary and dark places. There's a woman who's, uh, who's English, she's in the British Parliament, named Baroness Caroline Cox. And when she became a part of Parliament, when she took on the title of Baroness, she had a distinct sense from God that she was supposed to use that platform that she had been given to be a voice for the voiceless. And so she she does these secret rescue missions where she goes into dark parts of the world, maybe in a helicopter, maybe crossing over a country's border in the dark of night, evading guards, getting into places where she's not really supposed to be so that she can meet the people there and hear from them and tell their stories when she goes back to England, tell their stories in Parliament, and be a voice for people whose voice is not being heard, who are being persecuted, whose lives are in danger. It was God who told her to go there. And truly, when she goes to those places, her own life is in danger. And yet she trusts that this shepherd who told her to go there is watching out for her, who's protecting her, making sure that she accomplishes the things that he's called her to, and giving her the strength to do those things. And so even though God may sometimes lead us through those dark places, through the valley of the shadow of death, he will protect us. And the key here is to to trust that God can bring us safely through those situations, through those dark situations. And then it continues, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Think about the kid who's always picked on in school. Sometimes they have a lot to fear. But they rarely fear if the teacher or the principal is standing next to them. Why? Because they know that the teacher will defend them. They know the teacher will stick up for them. They know the teacher will make sure that nothing bad happens while that student is in that teacher's presence. And that's how it is with God. We can trust that when we're in his presence, which is always, because there's nowhere you can go where you're not in God's presence. When we're in God's presence, we know he's with us and we need not fear. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Then it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In ancient Palestine, shepherds had just a few pieces of equipment that they carried with them, kind of like a police officer always puts on their duty belt when they go uh, to get into their cruiser and, and go do what they do. They have, you know, their gun, they've got their taser, they've got their handcuffs, some rubber gloves, other things that they need to get through their day. Similarly, a shepherd had stuff that he always brought with him and those things would be a a satchel a little bag he'd stick some food in there he'd stick his sling you remember david and goliath he had his sling that he used to uh to knock out goliath with a little stone so that would be in his pouch and then in his hands he'd have in one hand his rod and in the other hand his staff and the rod was sort of a a short club with a, a ball on the end of it kind of a gnarly knob at the end of it and he would use that for defending the sheep So if ever there was something threatening the sheep, and that could be a lion or a bear or a mountain lion or a wolf, any of those things might be coming after the sheep. They're all predators. They all see sheep and they say, mmm, dinner. The shepherd's job is to care for the sheep. And so the shepherd would get in there with that rod and they would club the lion or club the wolf Can you imagine doing hand-to-hand combat with a lion? That idea kind of scares me. I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) But that's what a shepherd would do. The shepherd put their life in danger to protect the sheep. And so the rod comforts the sheep because the rod is a symbol of their protection, a symbol of the fact that the shepherd has got their back, that the shepherd will take out anything that threatens them. And then the staff was like a a long walking stick. You've all seen it with a a hook on the end. And the hook could be used for putting around the sheep's neck and pulling them out of danger, pulling them out of a thicket, pulling them out of a ravine. The other end of the stick could be used for kind of poking the sheep in the rear end and getting it going in the right direction, going back to the, the idea of guiding the sheep. But here we see that the rod and the staff, they comfort me and i can clearly see how the rod would be a comforting concept i bet you can too to know that there's someone who's got your back who's going to defend you when the bullies are out to get you but how is the staff something that comforts me it's not always comfortable you know to be poked in the rear end with a sharp pointy stick it comforts us because discipline is security it comforts us because discipline is security. When we get antsy because there's too many choices in front of us. We just don't know what to do. We don't know which way to go. And it's a comfort to know that we don't have a moral smorgasbord at our disposal. We can't just pick and choose whatever seems right in our own eyes because the shepherd has already limited our options. He knows where the good grass is and where the bad grass is. He knows where the good food is and where the poison is. And so he's limited our options. We don't have to worry about the stuff because he's laid out the good stuff right in front of us. And when we stray off away from the good stuff, he uses that staff to put us back in the right direction. And so we can take comfort in the discipline of God. We can take comfort in the staff of God because we know he's not correcting us to punish us but to restore us, to get us back to the green pastures and the still waters, to get us back to the things that we need, the paths of righteousness. And then we get to verse 5 and 6, and here the metaphor of the shepherd kind of comes to an end. Because we're now talking about a table with a banquet. And I don't know if you've ever seen sheep sitting at a table feasting at a banquet. I think it would look a little bit like those poker dogs. You remember the poker dog posters? (laughs) I think that's kind of what it would look like. And so we're not really talking about sheep and shepherds here anymore. Now we're talking about a great feast that's been prepared by a host. And this feast is spread in the presence of my enemies. Verse 5. The idea here is a continuation of the comfort that's experienced in the previous verse. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you spread a table in the presence of my enemies. Because at this banquet, the enemy has no power. Those who are coming after us are powerless to afflict us. Now that could be because we're inside of the host's camp and the the enemies are being kept at bay because the host is defending us as we eat this feast. Or it could be that this is a victory banquet and we're seated in the presence of our enemies who are now captive or reluctant guests at this feast as well. In either way, God has taken care of the enemies because he defends us, he's protecting us, and now he's our host at this banquet. But presence at this table is no, th- no small thing because this is God's table. This is Yahweh's table. This is the table of the one who made heaven and earth and all that's in it. There's a story in the second book of Samuel. And in this story, King David is now truly the king. He's done being chased by Saul, who was the king before him. Saul had chased him through the wilderness for years and years and years and David was clearly anointed as God's next king but he didn't want to oppose Saul he didn't want to take him out because Saul also was the Lord's anointed and so when Saul has finally died and when all of Saul's sons have finally died including Jonathan who was David's best friend David looks around and he's wondering if there's anyone from Saul's household to whom he can show favor And this is a remarkable thing because generally when you have a regime change in a government, when one king from a different family takes over and becomes the new king, what do they usually do? They wipe out everybody in the previous king's family. Because they don't want a threat to the new power. They don't want a threat to their rulership. But instead of doing that, David looks around and he says, is there anyone In Saul's household, to whom I can show God's favor. And he looks around and he finds Ziba, who was a servant in Saul's household. And he asks Ziba, Is there anyone left from Saul's household? Anyone that I can find, that I can show God's favor to? And Ziba says, Well, yeah, there's Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson. Now, I'm really hoping somebody sometime soon names their son Mephibosheth. I'm not going to do it. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna tell you our baby's name yet, but it's not Mephibosheth. But I really hope somebody names their child Mephibosheth, because it's an awesome name. In any case, Mephibosheth is, is crippled in both feet. He can't use his feet, he can't stand, he's weak, he's vulnerable. And what does David do? He restores to him all of the land that his grandfather Saul had. And he tells Ziba, who is Saul's servant, to farm that land for him and to give all of the profit to Mephibosheth. And then he says, then he says, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table. And that's how it was. The last verse of the chapter says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. To be at the king's table is to be a part of the king's household, to be welcomed into the king's family, to be afforded the king's protection. You know that Mephibosheth had nothing to worry about for the rest of his days because he had found favor with David the king. And God invites us to his banqueting table. He seats us at his table, and he welcomes us as sons and daughters. To be at God's table is to be under his protection. Surely his goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then it says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here, the house of the Lord refers to the temple, which was the place where God dwelt on earth. He promised that his presence would be there, and it would be a place where his people could come to worship him. And the literal reading of of forever is for length of days. And so you could carve out something where it says, and I will dwell in the temple for the rest of my life. But when we read this through a New Testament lens, through a Christian lens, we can see that the shepherd is hinting at eternity because the shepherd is Jesus himself, the one who laid down his life for the sheep, the one who was able to take his life back up again. And the dwelling place is the new Jerusalem where the dwelling place of God is with man, as we read in verse 21-3 of Revelation, and where everything is finally set right as it should be. Where there's no more pain or suffering, but life everlasting. And we get to be there, we get to be in the house of the Lord, in God's presence, all the days of our life, into eternity, because of what the shepherd has done for us. Because the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. And because the shepherd took it back up again. Trampling down death by death. Death is no more for the Christian. Because we found eternal life in Jesus, who is our Good Shepherd. And now we can be reconciled to God, and we can sit at His table, and we can be adopted as His sons and daughters, and we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So may you know the presence of the Good Shepherd in your life. May you feel His presence all of your days. And may you dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you care for us just as a shepherd cares for his sheep. And we thank you that you aren't just the shepherd, but that you are my shepherd. That you watch over each one of us and that you know us each by name. We thank you for your provision, for your guidance, and for your protection. And we thank you for welcoming us at your table. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk with you all of our days. We pray that you would keep us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And that you would bring us to your banqueting table, where we might share in the feast of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.